Survivor Series 1995 took place on November 19, 1995 at the U.S. Air Arena at Landover, Maryland. It had a uh, house of 14,500 people and 128,000 buys, which Matt is lower than the 225,000 buys from last year. So business in 1995 in WWF is way down. The understatement of the century. Yeah, this was uh, this was a bad time, as we've talked about for the last couple of shows, at least financially. Some people would argue it was still a good time for the product in and of itself, although, as mentioned, it was not a perfect environment when it came to the WWF at the time. No. In fact, you know who was really worried about the business around this time, Matt, was our old buddies, The Click. This was the time they called Vince and they said, look, we're going to go on strike if you don't meet with us. And they talked about creative issues and what the direction of the company should be, according to them. They pitched a ton of ideas. This, of course, caused major friction in the backstage area. Now, all of the guys, including Scott Hall until his death, they all claimed that, you know, they didn't suggest anybody get fired or anything. But, of course, Bam Bam Bigelow and Dean Douglas and Jean-Pierre Lafette, they all left within two months of this meeting, so... Matt, are you considering that a coincidence? Oh, once once is an once is a coincidence. Multiple times is a cause for concern. Not saying that the click deserve to be as like they're not the the end all be all as far as like locker room poison. But there there's times where there are just blatantly obvious things, and we talked about this on the In Your House show with the whole Shawn Michaels having to drop the belt. Mm-hmm. But there was that whole thing where clearly Scott was not a fan of Shane Douglas. But I don't know how effective that meeting was, though, because shortly after is when the, the, the brakes were put on the Diesel title run. Well, yeah, I, this did not derail Vince's decision to take the belt off Diesel. This experiment was done. They were through with this. We had gone in a year with this. And, you know, go back to our other shows. We did talk about the fact that business was, in fact, down. Whether that's attributed to Diesel or not, we talk about on those shows. So we're not going to get into that. But, Matt, I think you and I could agree it was time to take it off him, right? If it was time, the previous main event with Diesel and Bulldog was the the call for euthanization, and I think yeah. that, you know Vince McMahon, even based on his reaction, I think even he knew we gotta we gotta put a stop to this, and we'll we'll figure out the the plans as they come. But it's it's time to put the belt on someone else, whether that was someone new or going back to one of your your reliable stars. And that's what they did. When all else fails, as Adam has told me for years, always call on Brett. They called on Brett Hart, and they announced that they would have a no-holds-barred match at this pay-per-view, which would determine the WWF champion. Now, do you think the plans were in place to go ahead and put it on Sean, and, and Brett was just a transitional champion, or do you think they actually thought that maybe Brett would be the one who would carry it for a year? I think they, they had pigeonholed Sean as the guy as soon as they turned him babyface after WrestleMania 11. I think the the wheels were put in motion right there, I think, for him to be the next top guy. Whether they were going to do a rematch against Diesel again at 12 or he'd wrestle someone else, I think they knew he was going to be slotted in for the main event of WrestleMania. I, I, think, they, I think they wanted to correct what some would argue they did not do, because there were a lot of people saying Sean should have won the match at 11, even though he was the heel. And I I think there's an argument for both, but I can't say I fault them for wanting to go back to Brett, because outside of Brett, the main event scene, and we, we talked about this, even the big names like Undertaker or Yokozuna, they were doing other stuff. Like, they were not really circling the title picture at all. Mm-hmm. Yep, so they decided to put the belt on Bret Hart. We'll get to that match when we get to it. One thing I wanted to mention is, I've, I've talked about this, on all of these pay-per-views, for the most part, I would watch them live. And, you know, even before we were using Adam's black box to get the, get the events and watch them 
without having to pay Vince a dime. It was always a Thanksgiving tradition with me, you know. I would get together a friend of mine who lived on my block when I was a kid, you know, through 89. We would get the Survivor Series on Thanksgiving, and we would watch it together. And, you know, my mom wasn't a big fan of it, you know, but after football, this was... A Thanksgiving tradition of mine. 1995 was the first year that the Survivor Series was not held on Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving Eve. This took place on a Sunday, and I don't know. I just felt kind of derailed by that. Do, do you have any ideas as to why they would do that? I don't. I don't know. Maybe it would have cost more to to do productions closer to Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're you'd also have to pay your staff more because it's a holiday. I'm not talking about the wrestlers. I'm talking about like your lighting crew and you know your production team. I think that played a factor. But but yeah, it's it, it feels weird not having a Thanksgiving tie-in. Now that doesn't mean I want the gobbledygooker main eventing the show. <laughs> but what they chose to replace the Thanksgiving feel with, uh, I have questions about. Okay, I hope I have answers. But before we get to that. We're going to open the show not with a promotional package or anything. We're going to open up with Howard Finkel introducing a special guest commentator, Mr. Perfect. He was back in the WWF, but not as a wrestler, as Perfect was collecting and Lloyd's of London insurance policy because of his back issues. This meant that he couldn't wrestle, but he could definitely commentate. And uh, he was mostly on Superstars, but here he is commentating for the pay-per-view. Let's get this out of the way. Matt, how do you feel Mr. Perfect did as commentator on this show? I think he did a good job. I think wrestlers have a inherent advantage because in the, the kayfabe context, it adds credibility. But I question the, the full extent of his back issues. Now, obviously, it would ultimately play a factor, but it's the same thing with, you know, Randy Savage had the same thing where, where Vince thought he was done, and that's why he relegated him to the booth. But it turns out both of these guys still had more to give when they eventually jumped ship. Yeah. For sure. It's pretty much Macho Man all over again, right? Because, like you said, he took Macho Man, he put him in the booth, and Macho Man thought he still had more to give, so he signed with WCW. This is the same thing. He took Mr. Perfect, he put him in the booth because of his Lloyds of London contract, and sure enough, when that contract was up, he signed with WCW a couple less than a couple years later. So WCW definitely had the upper hand, even before six months from now when the NWO took over. They were still in control for a lot of this, right? Yeah, I think that the tide was starting to shift even even back here. Um, not that what WCW was doing was perfect. No, uh, no pun intended. But uh, <laughs> I think there were there were pros and cons of both companies at this point. The thing about Mister Perfect, I thought he did a pretty good job too. But there were certain parts where I, I imagine Vince would turn off those fucking headsets and either ream him or laugh. I don't know. But there's a part where Marty Jannetty does, you know, the rocker dropper is what they called it. You know that move, right? Yeah, the, the one that, Yeah, the famouser, the one that paralyzed that one jobber when the rockers did it a few years before. And what does Mr. Perfect say after that move is over? That could break a neck. <laughs> I'd imagine those headsets went off and Vince probably either went off on him or... I don't know, but it was kind of cool to have that edge, you know? Like, we didn't have, not not the edge, the fucking wrestler, but a fourth wall breaking here. Yeah, and he was kind of filling the the Lawler void since he was on the show in a wrestling capacity. All right, so with that out of the way, we get a video package hyping up the main event. We're getting some music as Diesel and Brett just just saying that, you know, stuff like Brett's telling Diesel, the truck stops here. Diesel, Diesel going back and forth with them, and I thought, with the exception of that terrible line, I thought this was actually a pretty good opening package. What do you think? Yeah, it definitely gets you hyped for the show. What also helped was that these two guys had had title matches at let's see, Royal Rumble '95 and King of the Ring '94. Both of those, mm-hmm. both of those were draws. Like, yeah. that wasn't a clean finish to either one. So there was sort of a built-in thing of this kind of being the rubber match in a way. Yeah, and, you know, they announced, you know, Gorilla Monsoon announced that, like I said, that it was going to be a no-holds-barred, no-DQ, so we are going to have a winner this time. And I remember, you know, we're not covering it for a while, but I remember in Royal Rumble 95, me and uh, my friend ordered that pay-per-view, and we were just so angry that that title match went on and on, and there was no clear winner. (laughs) As good of a match as it was, and it was a very good match, um, it's just... 
Ugh, I, I don't know. It, it just didn't hold up to any. I was really pissed that we didn't get a full-on result of that, that match. So, Matt, what do you say we just dive into our first Survivor Series together, huh? Uh, yeah, what a what a way to start. We look at the names. <laughs> look at the names of this match. I'm sure this will get you excited. Yeah, we're not starting the uh, we're not starting with the '87 Hogan Andre Survivor Series. That's for sure. Our first match: we have the Body Donna, Skip, Doctor Tom Pritchard, Rad Rashford, and One Two Three Kid, who had just turned heel, versus the Underdogs: Marty Jannetty, Barry Horowitz, Bob Holly, and Okushi. Uh, so. Question number one. Uh, yes, I wouldn't call Hakushi an underdog by any means. He's the only, like, the underdog should have just been called happy to be there. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brad Radford. Yeah, and, and, you know, Marty Jannetty, there was a whole dark side of the ring about his stuff he yes. was going through at the time. Uh, Gary Horowitz is what he was, and Bob Holly is the wrestling equivalent of watching paint dry. Uh, no matter what yeah. gimmick he he worked, uh, like the this match only served one purpose. It was to get more heat on Kid since he turned yes. heel on the the show right before this. Like they put him, yeah, put was, him with DiBiase, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and you had Sunny here, which she was really the first one like woman to get over just because she was so hot. Oh yeah, and I I would. I would be the first to admit, I had posters of her, too. I had signed posters from her. I had a pretty big crush as well, as did every teenager at that time. And you're absolutely right. That's the one purpose of this match. But I'm going to say, even given that end game, I don't think this is a bad match. Oh, it's not terrible. Like, the, the in-ring work is fine. You know, you, you see some good stuff. Like, there, there's, a, there's a really good spine buster in here. Uh, but I love how they keep cutting the razor. Yeah, in the in the locker yeah. room. Yeah, eventually he just throws the TV. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're getting into the match. So Janetti starts off cleaning house, but Hakushi he's getting worked on by Ratford and the kid. <laughs> Ratford, Louis Spicoli, who is a real tragic story in the world of wrestling. He died in 1998. I think he was maybe in his late 20s, just super super early. Just a really good worker who just fell victim to his own impulses. You know, he had some habits that he just could not kick, and he died way early. He's giving Janetti a spine buster, as you said, and we get a frog splash from the 123 Kid. Bob Holly tags, but the heels gang up on him in their corner. Pritchard then gives Bob Holly a gut wrench powerbomb, but he misses a moonsault, and then Bob Holly eliminates him with a crossbody. So we have Tom Pritchard, who's gone. Yeah, and he was... A flash in the pan, like he's more important as being like a trainer. Absolutely, yeah. He really made his mark as a trainer. He's real famous for training The Rock was his big pupil. But yeah, he he definitely that's where he made his mark. But you know what? He was always here to give some workers a chance to work. So Bob Holly is being stupid and he's celebrating. So Skip comes up and rolls him up for a pin. That's one thing I just never liked about the Survivor Series matches. They would get pinned with moves that we'd never seen get uh, oh, used to get they actually get the pin. Especially like a roll up when it's not like he took a whole lot of punishment. Yeah, uh, it's not like it's not the days where you get fast counts by refs or anything like that. It's it always makes them look dumb. But yeah, you're right. Like mm. th- there's one year where it just drove me nuts that people were getting pinned with certain moves. So Hakushi comes in. He's uh, using some kicks on Skip. He tries a power bomb, but Skip raises his knees. The kid returns and trades kicks with Hakushi until Hakushi answers with this handspring elbow, which I always loved. This was a move that was made famous when I was growing up by a guy by the name of Great Muda, who had a hell of a run in WCW in 89, 90, and he used his handspring elbow all the time. It's such a thrilling move, and I love when it's used. He follows that up with a flying tackle and a springboard splash, but the splash misses, and the kid responds with a kick to the head, and then he gets pinned by not the one, two, three kid, but Rad Radford. Radford then takes control of Horowitz. He pulls him up on some pin attempts before we see that Skip just wants Barry Horowitz to suffer. Because let's not forget, Matt, you know, we didn't cover SummerSlam 95, but these two had quite a feud. Yeah, if you want to call it that. <laughs> I mean, this was this was Barry Horowitz's time in the sun, you know. and Yeah, he, every got, he got the equivalent of skin cancer because it amounted to nothing. <laughs> it did. And here's the thing about Barry Horowitz. Every single time I open up my YouTube feed, 
there's always a shoot video with Barry Horowitz. This guy does not stop talking about the business. He seems like a cool enough dude, but every time I turn around, he's either talking shit about Michaels or do, doing these shoot interviews that people have been doing for years. It's just fighting for relevancy. Exactly. Rad Radford does some push-ups, which I thought, which I laughed at. But this all this allows Barry Horowitz to come up and cradle him for a pin. So there goes Rad Radford. He lasted longer than I was expecting. Yeah, which is to say longer than thirty seconds. <laughs> I was not expecting him to last longer than Akuchi, for Christ's sake. But this allows Kid to hit another head kick, and this get and he pins Horowitz with a sliding leg drop for that elimination. And as you said, Matt, we're seeing Razor Ramon watch just getting so pissed in the backstage area. Skip and Marty, they're fighting back and forth until Janetti hits a top row powerbomb, which was actually a pretty killer move. And then that's, this eliminates Skip. Man, Janetti, he's a guy who, when he was on, he was on. And he had some good matches when he wanted to. But God, is he just a weirdo if you see that dark side of the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, athleticism, and, you know, this is where you get the, the trademark what a maneuver from Vince. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's in this spot. I mean, it's an impressive move. He hit the powerbomb off the top. Like, I'm surprised he didn't botch that, given his reputation. Yeah. Kid responds with a flying leg drop and some drop kicks, but he misses a senton. And then here comes Sid for some reason. He's here to help. DiBiase sensing trouble when the kid almost loses to the rocker dropper. And this is when we get that line that I mentioned earlier where Perfect was like, you could break a neck with that move. Ted DiBiase distracts the ref while Sid gives Marty a hot shot off the ropes. And then the kid covers Janetti for the win. Final elimination at 18 minutes, 45 seconds. Matt, what do you think of this match? It's better than it has any right to be when you look at the talent that's assembled. I, I don't like the, the Sid run-in because yeah. having Kid beat Janetti without help would have been just fine because it's not like he was going over a main event star, which is always the problem with, you know, heels. If you're going to have them cheat to win, it's better to do it against the big stars through those underhanded means. But but it, it did its job. It got heat on Kid. So as far as advancing the story, it served its purpose. Yeah, this uh, this really got the crowd into it. I, I heard the crowd really into this match. Very hot opener. And this I think this did everything an opening match is supposed to do, honestly, so I had no problems with that either. After the match, uh, we're hearing Vince just complain that 1-2-3-Kid wasn't even supposed to be there. And then, of course, we're showing uh, Razor Ramon. He's backstage getting pissed, and he smashes a TV against the wall and throws a table to show his dominance. Yeah, it's like that uh, that thing that Savage would do with WCW when he flips the Yeah. Table. Yes. <laughs> then we have Todd Pettengill. He's back with Razor's wildcard team. And Cornette's saying that Razor is real tough against the TV, which I thought was a funny line. <laughs> Owen says that Razor needs to get serious because he has a commitment to be in this match. And then Dean Douglas says that they are a united team minus Razor Ramon. He tells Razor to get away from the monitor and get his head on straight. And then uh, what's weird about this promo, Matt, is it's it's going on and... <laughs> As it's going on, we're hearing birth of phase music in the background. Yep. It's like they ran out of it's like they didn't manage the time correctly. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, do I have to say these names? Um Oh boy. Alright. Bertha Faye, Tomoko Watanabe, Lioness Asuka, and Asia Kong versus Alundra Blaze, Chaparita Asari, Sagi Hasagawa, and Kyoko Inui. Good job. Boy, God, this is what I miss the days. You know, this is one of those times where I champion one word names. Yeah, no kidding. They were trying really hard, or maybe they weren't. If you ask Alundra Blaze Medusa around this time, they weren't really trying that much with her, but they're bringing in all these Japanese women to kind of give her a little bit of competition. The problem is that WWF did not have any women's competition around this time, did they? No, it's far cry from what it is nowadays. Yeah, I can't wait till I get. You know, I'm, I'm going through everything now. I can't wait till I get to modern women's wrestling because I am a fan of women's wrestling. I think, you know, a lot like tennis. I can watch a women's tennis match. I can't watch men's tennis match because their matches are too quick. I think women's matches, they, there's, there's, some, there's a grace to them, and I can't wait to really get to those. But this was a time when, again, there just wasn't any character. Nobody spoke any English, which isn't a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing that. I'm criticizing the fact that they can't cut promos that people can understand, and they can't get any characters going. So nobody gives a shit. So, the match. We're seeing Lioness. She's giving Asari a giant swing. And then Alundra Blaze. She suplexes Asuka. And Asari nails a Sky Twister press. 
And then we're this is when a Blaze just eliminates Lioness with a German suplex. So there goes the Lioness. Tomoko enters, but she misses a moonsault. Alundra enters with a flying crossbody. And then Saki trades strikes and dangerous suplexes with Aja Kong. And then Kong drops Saki on her head for a pin. So there goes Saki. Aja then gets a couple quick eliminations with a diving splash and reverse sunset flip. So we got Asari and Anui. They're gone. Alundra is alone now. So all three women are going after her. She fights them off. Suplexes Tomoko. Then Blaze attempts a powerbomb. She can't do it, and she turns it into a pile driver for an elimination. So there goes Tomoko. Bertha Ray, she pounces on Alundra, gives her a corner splash. Aja Kong then tries some double teaming, but she hits Bertha Fay. Blaze capitalizes with a German suplex for a pin on her, so there goes Bertha Fay. Aja attacks without hesitation. She's suplexing Alundra and then bumping her in the corner. She then hits a standing moonsault, which was very impressive. But... Aja Kong blocks the superplex, gives Alundra avalanche attack, and then drills her with a back fist for the win at 10 minutes and one second. So 10 minutes, nice and smooth, right? Nice and, and quick. Get your shit in and get out. And to the yeah. they were doing a lot of moves that were not atypical at the time. So mm-hmm. I think as far as a showcase, it, again, served its purpose. Uh, but remember, a month after this is when Alundra Blaze jumped ship. Yep, she threw the belt, famously threw the belt in the trash, and a lot of people allude that to being the real beginning of the Monday Night Wars, because now it started getting personal. Yeah. Speaking of personal, Todd Pettengill sitting with a Bill Clinton impersonator. Oh, boy. (laughs) Was Phil Hartman unavailable? (laughs) They use this guy all the time. They use him at WrestleMania 10. He's back here. I don't know. For some reason, Vince just finds ways to, I don't know if he does it anymore or did it until he left the company, but... Or whatever he's doing. What is he now? Is he chairman? He's not chairman. I don't even know what his official title is. Well, Vince always did this political stuff, and I don't know. It just it turned a lot of people, including me, off. But I kind of laughed at this stuff just because I lived through the Clinton era, so I remember it pretty well. Then we're getting a promo from Goldust, and we saw his debut last time, Matt, but here he is facing Bam Bam Bigelow. Now, Bam Bam was a guy who he lost WrestleMania 11 with the promise that he would get a huge push but here he is losing to Goldust and he wouldn't last long in the WWF he'd be gone pretty quick do you think the click has something to do with that for sure because if you remember Bigelow was a much more athletic big man than Kevin Nash has ever been Uh, and I and I think you know we'll see this with Vader next year anytime these guys can do stuff that are at least on par with like a a Michaels or a Nash they find a way to undercut him well I think there's more to the Vader story that we'll get into when we get to that event so we're getting to the match. Goldust is throwing some punches, but Bam Bam, he makes him regroup. He pulls Bam Bam to the floor, and they brawl a bit. Goldust hits the post on a missed clothesline. He did this a lot. I remember Dustin Rhodes hitting that, hitting that post so many times in his career. They return to the ring until Goldust clotheslines Bigelow to the floor once again. And then we're, he, feds him, he fends off some headbutts, and he gets a knee lift in. But once again, we're outside the ring. Goldust rams Bam Bam into the steps. Inside the ring, Bam Bam scores a back suplex. He then tries a flying headbutt, but he misses. Goldust capitalizes with not a final move, Matt, but some chin locks and head vices. Yep, back to the, uh, back to the drawing board. We went through this last month when we reviewed when we reviewed him against Marty Jannetty. He just does so many fucking rest holds, and I don't know if it's Bam Bam being blown up, but it doesn't make for a good flowing match. Bam Bam then powers him into an electric chair drop. The match then becomes kind of a slugfest until uh, Goldust hits a jumping clothesline. Bam Bam answers with his own. However, he misses a corner splash, and Goldust uses that opening to land a bulldog for the win at eight minutes. 18 seconds. Matt, what did you think of this match? It was a dud. Uh, this this was, much like the Marty Jannetty match, they were just trying to put Goldust over, but yet they, they still weren't sure how far to push it because they made some insinuations, and Vince's way of saying it was he gives you the willies. Yeah. And I think that was his direct quote. So that you knew what they were trying to build towards, but they still weren't fully committed to it just yet. It would take a little bit longer. But the, the, the in-ring work itself was, was it's probably the, the weakest thing on this show. Not a good mix. You know, we talk about chemistry that a lot of these wrestlers have with one another. These two just had no chemistry, and that is no knock on the work of Dustin Rhodes or Scott Bigelow himself. I just don't think they had chemistry to put on a good match. So we go back to Bill Clinton as his special guest is Bob Backlund. 
Yeah, one, kids one come year, back. At last year's event, he was winning the world title, and this year, yeah, he's in a, a comedic segment with this fake Clinton impersonator. <laughs> he's hanging out with fake Bill Clinton. <laughs> So we're recapping Matt's favorite feud, the Undertaker-Mabel feud. Oh, holy shit. Uh, I mean, any, anything with Mabel in 95 is like a death sentence. Yeah. They were pushing this guy to the moon. So we're seeing, we're then seeing Jerry Lawler. He's in the ring with a microphone. He's introducing the Royals, which is himself, Isaac Yankum, King Mabel, and Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And they're going to be taking on the dark side, which is The Undertaker, Savio Vega, Fatu, and Henry O. Godwin. Yeah, because what I and, think of the Lord of Darkness and, uh, and uh, <laughs> the embodiment of chaotic evil, I think of a flashy dancer, an anti-violence guy, and a hillbilly. <laughs> and the other team should have been called, I promise good things are coming soon. <laughs> when, you look at, when you look at Isaac Yankum and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and even when you look at Fatu versus what he morph into eventually don't forget these guys hung out backstage they, they were known as the bone street crew because they would sit there they play dominoes before a show and crush was involved in that crew as well and so they were kind of like the anti-click in a way yeah um, like i think got, uh comma godfather was part of that yeah big part of it as was yokozuna for some reason yokozuna and undertaker were like really good friends and so i can see them being even henry godwin he was a part of that crew too i could see them being happy that they're having to work together but this match oh boy let's get to it yeah i mean look, survivor series debut for triple h yep debut for isaac yankum who would eventually become kane kane yeah uh, but those poor bastards who had to carry Mabel to the ring. Oh, God. It's bad yeah. enough you already have this giant setup with the, the throne and all that. Then you got this 400-plus-pound guy that you also have to carry. So last week we talked about Fatu and Triple H. They were in a one-on-one match. And here they're starting this match off. They're fighting back and forth until Hunter very quickly attempts a pedigree. And I love how Undertaker's coming in. And I love Hunter's, like, response every time Undertaker comes in. Henry Godwin enters, but no one wants to face him. Yankum tags, and Godwin throws him around the ring a bit. Yankum answers with a back suplex. Triple H then returns to attack Godwin, but Godwin press slams him. And then Lawler and Vega, they face off and do some dancing. Why is Lawler even here? God, they found, like, Lawler was well past his expiration date here. Because it was two years ago when you were like, all right, this Bret Hart shit's getting old. Mm -hmm. Like, they just kept finding ways to put Lawler in the ring. Yeah, and I saw a biography with him, I think it was last year, where it was kind of his idea to, much like we talked about with Savage and Perfect, he was not hired as an announcer, he was hired as a wrestler. He wanted to wrestle more. But when you have stuff like this, and we'll talk later about his feud with Jake the Snake Roberts, and my God, an interview segment with the warrior that's infamous, it's just weird seeing Lawler in big events like this. You know, put him on Raw, put him on Superstars, don't put him on the big events. If you do, have him be behind the mic. Yeah, because you, that's, you, you like have, you said, in 95, that was his best. Yeah, one. you put him in this match to have him be the first one out. Exactly. Like, quick. So, Fatu, he's attacking Lawler, but Yankum kicks Fatu. Isaac Yankum slams him and nails a leg drop. He also whips Mabel toward Fatu, but Fatu moves. Savio returns, only to get caught in a sidewalk slam and an overhead toss. We're getting some triple team from the heels, and then Lawler gives Vega a power driver. Savio's fighting until Jerry Lawler gives him another one. However, Savio stumbles into the Undertaker for the tag, and no one will tag Lawler, which I thought was actually a pretty funny bit. When he goes to tag and everybody's like, fuck no. So, of course, Undertaker, like you said, pretty quick, he eliminates Jerry Lawler with a tombstone. Here comes Isaac Yankum, and then Undertaker nails a jumping clothesline and another tombstone. So that eliminates Isaac Yankum. Triple H is retreating, but Godwin makes him return. Undertaker grabs him, chokeslams Hunter from the apron to the ring, which I thought was a pretty cool move there. And that eliminates Triple H. Mabel pounces on the Undertaker, gives him a belly-to-belly -belly suplex. By the way, this is now Mabel's by himself. Yep, it's, it's four-on-one at this point. Four on one at this point. So Mabel pounces on the Undertaker, gives him a belly to belly suplex. He follows that with a leg drop, would, but Undertaker. I, I, if I was the Undertaker, I would not take that move again. Fuck no! I was thinking that exact same thing. But when Undertaker's rising, this frightens Mabel, so he bails out of the ring and leaves. This is what I call the Honky Tonk Man elimination because Honky Tonk Man did this in the very first Survivor Series where he was against all these fuckers who wanted his head. And he once he got out of the ring, he got atomic dropped outside the ring. He's like, fuck this, and he left. Yep, and that, uh, that ends the match. It's a clean sweep. Yep, 
So this is Mabel leaving the ring, and the Dark Side wins the elimination match at 14 minutes, 21 seconds. So this is just to get Undertaker over, correct? Oh, absolutely, because this was his return after breaking his nose, and that's why he's wearing the Phantom of the Opera mask. I like that mask. I'm glad it didn't stick around. Yeah, it was around just for the right amount of time, I yeah, think. Yeah, it was more for protection than it was for anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was putting the Undertaker back. Which they, they always did a good job. Like Whenever they had to bring him back, uh, they knew how to book him strong. I can't wait till we get to future instances of that because, like I said, after 2004, I, I'm lost on what, how they handled The Undertaker. So, And he has another 16 years after that. So Vince is talking about the main event, and Ross gives his prediction that he thinks Diesel's going to win. And we're getting some promos from both Bret Hart and Diesel. Bret Hart says he knows the winner will face the Bulldog, but he's taking one match at a time. He says he'd be lying if he wasn't worried about Diesel. And then Bret Hart, of course, compares himself to a hockey player, Wayne Gretzky. And he wonders if he's still the best there is, best there was, and the best there will be. And he repeats his line about the truck stopping here and tells Diesel he will be excellently executed. Brett was never never good at promos, was he? Not until 97 he wasn't. <laughs> so then we have some words from Diesel. He tells Bulldog that he wouldn't still be in the picture without Brett Hart's interference, so he's pushing him off. And so this is becoming personal because Brett actually stuck his nose in Diesel's business. Uh, Diesel then mentions that people think the match favors Brett the longer it goes. And he agrees with that, but he isn't paid by the hour. He promises high-impact moves, and then Diesel claims that the WWF has run efficiently on Diesel power. Oh, boy, that's... uh. <laughs> I love how TNA did a whole segment about this where he pulled out a chart that showed he was more a bigger draw than Hogan. Oh, that's funny. i got to send you that segment. You, you definitely have to. So after these promos, they go to another interview. Todd Pentengill's on the heel half of the wildcard team. we got Ted DiBiase, we got Sid, Bulldog, and Cornette. And Pettengill says that he talked to Cornette earlier with the other team, and, and Cornette says that he denied that that happened. I love Cornette. <laughs> he says that he hasn't seen Todd Pentengill all day. <laughs> and he also claims to be as honest as the day is long. Cornette is the best, man. Yeah, he is. Ted DiBiase isn't convinced and threatens Cornette if he double-crosses his team. Shawn Michaels and Ahmed Johnson, they choose that moment to interrupt. Shawn calls them ladies and tells them to stop fighting. That's ironic. He also calls Ahmed Johnson his back door. I don't know what this means, but Shawn calls it a wild night and a wild team, and... While Cornette was hilarious in this segment, Shawn Michaels, as big of a fan as I am of him, just comes off as annoying in it. Yeah, he never... I think Shawn works much better as a heel than he works as a babyface. Oh, yeah. Like, in any capacity. Just because that character, it didn't change. Like, it was just... No. He was always that. So I think just that that kind of role is more befitting of a bad guy. All right, so... We're at the wild card match, which is Shawn Michaels, Ahmed Johnson, the British Bulldog, and Psycho Sid with Jim Cornette and Ted DiBiase. Yes, those are faces and heels together versus Razor Ramon, Dean Douglas, Owen Hart, and Yokozuna with Mr. Fuji. Now, this match was the idea of a gentleman who we'll talk about if we talk about early 90s WCW. This was the idea of a guy who started working for Vince named Cowboy Bill Watts. He worked there for a few weeks, and this was his suggestion. And Vince wasn't really for the idea, but he said, you know what, Bill? If you, if you have confidence in it, we'll go ahead and do it. Matt, this match is just awkward to me. It's just a strange dynamic, especially when they were still very protective of kayfabe. Yeah. It was just weird. Like, I don't know who we're, we're supposed to cheer. I, I think there's a way to do this nowadays where the lines are so, like, blurred. But, yeah, it's, I mean, the the... The match itself is fine, but it's just the 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 crowd really didn't know how to fully embrace it. And you know what we we talked about with the first match that that the sole idea was that was to advance the storyline of the kid. Do you think this sole idea of this is to get Ahmed Johnson over? Not the sole one, but if you look at the winning team, Sean was about to win the Rumble in a couple months. Mm-hmm. Ahmed was the debuting star, and Bulldog was the number one contender for the title. All right, so. We're seeing Owen and Sean, they're trading athletic moves while Michaels fends off Cornette, but Owen catches Sean Michaels in a power slam. Douglas then attacks Sean's head and whips him around the ring a bit. Dean Douglas misses a Vader bomb, so Sean hits a moonsault. We then get Ahmed Johnson, he's in, and he gets some axe kicks in. He also attempts slamming Yokozuna, but he fails. 
Everyone's jumping in and attacking. Ahmed fights them off, and he press slams Michaels into Douglas. I always like that move when they do that. Dean Douglas bails when Michaels attempts a sweet chin music on him. Razor orders Dean Douglas to return, so both men shove each other. This knocks Dean Douglas into a roll-up, so the first elimination is Dean Douglas. Oh, I'm so surprised, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And this, what, the third roll-up elimination of this pay-per-view? Mm-hmm. Next, we have Owen and Bulldog. They're fighting it out. Bulldog monkey flips Owen Hart, but Owen responds with a wheel kick. However, they just stop and they decide that Sean and Razor should wrestle each other. So they tag them in and these two exchange some arrogant looks at each other as they fight back and forth. And Razor gives Sean a Razor's edge. Ahmed Johnson breaks up the pin. Then we get Sid. He's entering the match. Razor rallies him and Yoko, but Sid takes control. He slows the pace for a bit. Sid nails a chokeslam and tags Michaels. He holds Razor for sweet chin music, but Sean hits Sid instead. Sean doesn't seem to care. He just shrugs his shoulders while Razor pins Sid, despite Bulldog trying to stop it. This eliminates Sid. Yeah, they, they, did, they repeated the same spot they did with Sean and Diesel the year before. Good call. Sid, he takes offense to this and he powerbombs Sean. He then leaves while Razor covers him. Sean kicks out, but he is in trouble. Owen and Yokozuna, they whip him around the ring a bit and they wear him down. But Owen misses a flying headbutt and Sean tags Ahmed Johnson. Ahmed cleans house and catches Owen with a Pearl River plunge for an elimination. So there goes Owen Hart. Razor then answers with a bulldog, but Ahmed Johnson hits a spine buster. He then makes the mistake of posing, so Razor hits the Razor's edge. Bulldog stops the pin and takes over the match while Sid and the kid arrive. So the kid once again makes another return here. Yeah, like you, you'd think with the amount of build, they, w- they would save the blow off of the kid razor match for WrestleMania. The kid's tripping razor, which allows Bulldog to use the running power slam. So there goes Razor Ramon. They oh, go ahead. Should not have counted it as elimination because he was never tagged in. Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing about these Survivor Series matches. There's some like just convenient forgetting of rules here. Yeah. Yokozuna is left against Sean, Bulldog, and Ahmed Johnson. He tries a bonsai drop, but Sean moves. Michaels then tags Ahmed Johnson, who slams Yokozuna to a massive pop in the crowd. But Bulldog's breaking up the pin for some reason, even though this is his team. Uh, Sean and Ahmed have enough and send Davey Boy Smith out of the ring. Sean then turns and gives Yokozuna a sweet chin music. Ahmed follows this up with a jumping splash for the win. Final elimination being Yokozuna at 27 minutes, 24 seconds. Matt, did you get any enjoyment of this match whatsoever? Yeah, this was it was good work. You know, it was a good thing uh, they played on the Sid Michaels thing with him inadvertently being the cause for elimination, the subsequent powerbomb. You're building up the kid razor thing still, and you protected the guys that you had the most investment in at this juncture. I don't know, man. It just didn't advance. I guess it did advance the one, two, three kid storyline because he came back out, but it just felt too scattered for me. I, I, I followed the action, but there were times when even though these guys were, they had promos and we saw them before, I still didn't know who was on whose team and it just kind of threw me off a bit. So Pettengill's back in the presidential box and who's sitting with Bill Clinton, but that troublemaker, Sonny. His wife's going to have words when he gets home. Especially with the part in the cleavage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next, they're recapping the Brett-Diesel feud again. Brett's talking about his previous matches against Diesel. Those matches, as we mentioned, we're going to cover them eventually, but man, they were great matches. Diesel said that he gave Brett the jackknife both times, and the question still remains whether he can beat him or not. And once again, we're seeing Diesel say that he's not paid by the hour. He's going to use his power and levers to beat him up. Brett says that they will find out who is the best. And then Vince is asking Perfect and Ross for their thoughts again. Perfect picks Brett, and Ross still thinks Diesel's going to pull this off. You know, I'll say this. They're building this main event up pretty well. Yeah, especially because they were still both babyfaces at the time. Yep. And both guys got good ovations. Like, this was a very 50-50 crowd. Final main event, we have the no disqualification match for the WWF title between Bret Hart and Diesel. I love how Vince is talking and Bret's music interrupts him. (laughs) I got a big laugh out of that. Give it two years, that'll mean something totally different. Exactly. At this very same event. And it's just so funny. It's funny you mention that because here, like, Vince seems overly enthusiastic for Bret Hart here. He is not putting Diesel over whatsoever. No, he does because there's a part where Kevin Nash puts his foot up and... Vince goes, what a maneuver. (laughs) (laughs) We get this shot that is used in a lot of videos after this where Hebner's showing Brett the belt, and he's just kind of looking at it, and he kind of winks at it a bit. I tell you what, that's the most charisma I've seen out of Bret Hart in a while. That's only up to this point. Yep, for sure. 
All right, so here's the match. So Brett's going after Diesel's legs, but Diesel answers with some forearms and elbows. They brawl to the floor where Diesel drops Bret Hart on the rail. He also whips Bret into the steps and the ring post. Then Diesel uses a chair and attempts a jackknife already. Bret responds with biting him. Bret's kind of playing the heel here, isn't he? Well, they're, they're doing the by any means necessary because, you know, he's fighting a guy who's so much bigger than him. Uh, this is one of the best examples of it. The small guy working over the bigger leg and it actually works. For sure. He takes control and attacks Diesel's legs before putting Diesel into figure four. He reaches the ropes, but Brett is slow to release the hold. He then tries for a sharpshooter, but Diesel shoves Brett into the exposed buckle. Brett recovers and rams Diesel's leg into the post. Yeah, he then grabs some cable, power. and he's tying Diesel's legs up. Yeah, well, he does the ramming into the leg like three or four times. Yeah. Which, you know, it's no DQ, so they, they, have, they mm-hmm. can do with that. Diesel just cannot find a way to escape, so Brett attacks his legs with a chair. Did you ever read Bret Hart's book? I, I've avoided it. I was at a library, and I picked it up, and I read it in a set of days. And what Bret Hart says in that book is it was his idea to kind of play the heel here because he wanted all the sympathy to go to Diesel for the final win. I don't know. It's not as ego-driven as you think it would be. It's actually a pretty decent read. I would recommend kind of checking it out, although... A little Bret Hart goes a long way, as both of us have mentioned. Uh-huh. And also, like, that justification doesn't make sense given the way the post-match occurs. Exactly. Mm. That's why I don't fully buy that statement. That's the one thing about Bret Hart. You always have to take everything he says with a grain of salt. Yeah, because he's salty as fuck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Bret Hart attack continues until Diesel crotches him on the top rope. Diesel's freeing himself and chokes Bret with the cable. He follows with a side slam and whips Brett chest first into that exposed buckle. Diesel is limping, really selling this injury, but he attacks Brett on the ropes and uses snake eyes, which Jim Ross calls out. This is a move he used in WCW. They called it snake eyes because he was Vinny Vegas, and Jim Ross calls it the snake eyes. Which is also what they called it when Undertaker started using it. That's a good name. I mean, you knew the exposed turnbuckles were going to come into effect at some point. For sure, and I think that's good storytelling. I think the fact that they exposed that turnbuckle, you know, even as I was watching this initially, I was like, oh my god, you know that's going to come into play. And that's the suspense of it, right? That's why we like wrestling so much. Yeah, it's a lot of dudes in underwear fighting, but at the same time, they tell stories here. And I'll tell you, I'll say this about this match. This tells a hell of a story. Yeah, this is also one of the only times Kevin Nash actually did legitimate selling. I think... And if you hear Kevin Nash in interviews, he would say the same thing. I think this is probably the best match of Kevin Nash's career. Honestly. It's up there. It's in the top three. Mm-hmm. So Diesel tries to hit Bret Hart again in the exposed corner, but Bret Hart reverses it. And then Hart's going into his five moves of doom until he misses a slingshot crossbody. He recovers and climbs on the apron, but Diesel shoves Bret Hart onto the announce table. It breaks. And you know what? This was a hell of a move in 1995. Oh, God, yeah. Like, this was before ECW made people going through tables, like, every every show. You're starting to see, you know, getting out of the circle in a more hard-hitting style when it comes to some of these spots. Uh, and also, it worked because this shit didn't happen. No. Like, especially the main, the smaller guy is the one who goes through the table. Yeah, that's not the bigger dude. And, you know, Bret Hart has said he saw Sabu do this in ECW, and he said, I want to do that. And so he brought it to Vince's attention, and they agreed to go ahead and do it. So according to Bret Hart, again, grain of salt, but this was his idea. I don't know if he was the one who saw Sabu do it. I can't imagine Mr. Highbrow and technical wrestling Bret Hart would be watching Sabu, Mr. Botchamania of all people. I know. Diesel collects Bret up, and and he's just collapsing in a heap. And again, we have, we have some good storytelling going on here because he puts Bret in the ring. He throws Bret into the ring, and he's going for a jackknife, but he's having second thoughts because he's showing concern that, oh, God, I, might, I must have really hurt this dude. So this hesitation causes Bret to cradle Diesel for the win at 24 minutes, 54 seconds. Matt, my friend, what do you think of this match? Uh, this one, maybe the best match WWF would have all year. Like if you look at 95 in a vacuum, uh, I think this is far and away one of the best matches, if not the best. You found a way to get the belt off Diesel without dropping him down the card. You know, he got, some would say he got overconfident. Brett, you know, out, you could say he outsmarted him. You could say he got lucky, whatever. Whatever way you want to use to protect him, you could justifiably get away with. Oh, what'd you think of Diesel? Just playing out on camera yelling, motherfucker. 
I, that was a joke at Brett's expense, apparently, because in, in 1990, when Brett got pinned on Survivor Series, he said fuck as he sat up. Really? Yeah. That's funny. What I heard is when Diesel does these power bombs onto Bret Hart, you know, after the match, he's kind of throwing his fit, and he's going to turn into his tweener phase here. This is when he goes semi-heel, although he's still friends with Michaels. We'll get into that in the next WWF pay-per-view we do. But when he's doing these power bombs, you can hear him yell, remember who did you the fucking favor? Sometimes it's Brett, like, you know, he's beating up refs. Yeah, exactly. But I'm with you, man, on this main event. I thought it was a great main event. I thought it told a hell of a story. I was way into this match, way more than I was expecting. And so, you know, we'll, we'll get into our wrap-up when we get to it, but it's safe to assume that this is a great way to end this uh, pay-per-view, and <laughs> it's borderline a one-match card, but we'll get our wrap-up here in a bit. Um, Overall, Matt, what do you think of Survivor Series 1995? I'd say of all the WWF shows we've done up to this point, this was probably the strongest product collectively and certainly better than the previous survivor series at least the last couple years before this mm-hmm. at least you could say you know your your mainstay guys were in prominent roles they were used effectively i don't think anybody got buried on this show outside of dean douglas but that was just a continuation of what had already been happening it was important because you ended the one-year title reign of Diesel, started to shift him into a new role. You repositioned Brett after he, quote-unquote, served time by doing undercard matches with Yankum and the, the one-eyed guy, Jean-Pierre Jeanette. I think the one knock I have on the show is the, the Bam Bam Goldust match is, is not good. And the wild card thing is a good idea, but I think there was a better way they could have executed it. And... Does kind of hurt the show, but overall, I think this is a, a pretty strong show, but it's elevated by the main event. Uh, so I'm going to give this a very, very enthusiastic 7 on 10. 7 on 10, very similar to my score for it as well. That's exactly what I have down on my iPad here. And I'm, um, I'm with you. You know, I think this is one of three very, very important events in the history of wrestling. I think WrestleMania 13 and I Bash at the Beach 96. And this all fall into that category of just events that change the business. And I think Bret Hart using that move really, really changed a lot. And the way Diesel responded to the end of the match and everything that was a result of this, it was a game changer for the WWF. And we have reviewed these shows, Matt. We've been going through these month by month. And we have said over and over while doing 1995 that, man, that event was sure a stinker. It got really low last time we we reviewed the last in your house a couple months ago, and I was really happy to put this on and get really into a few of the matches. Now, my highlight is definitely the main event. I don't think there's any question about that. My low light, you know, I'm not gonna say it was. Bam Bam and Goldust. I just think that wild card match, there are better ways to use the main event players, and I don't think that was a good way to use them. So that's probably controversial, but that's my low light. You're still sticking with Bam Bam and Goldust as your low light? For sure. Yeah, my score was 7 out of 10 for this event. Next week, we're going to talk World War III, the first World War III event of WCW, the first of, I believe they did it through, what, 98? I love, though, that this is the start of real one-upsmanship. Oh, yeah, yeah. you got your Royal Rumble? We got <laughs> we got three rings and twice the people. And I love Eric Bischoff's podcast. I listen to it a lot. But when he talks about this, he says, Oh, I swear, it was in no way used to one-up the Royal Rumble. I just wanted to give a theme. Bullshit. Yeah. I call bullshit on War that. Games was not trying to one-up a steel cage. The only thing I remember about next week's event is it's a fucking clusterfuck. And that's the best you can use to describe a lot of these, you know, the, these World War Three events. You have three rings full of 60 dudes. We'll get into, speci- into the specifics next week, but, man, it, they're just... I remember it just being hard to follow. Yeah, I mean, that's hard just by the very... the sheer mass of people. But it is also different from the Royal Rumble in that everyone starts at the same time. It's a battle royal, so the matches don't go as long. And I remember it's the, the tease, the same thing as the WWF, where even when he's not... Winning the match, Hogan still has to make sure he's the most important <laughs> yeah. part at the expense of Randy Savage. <laughs> so it's like if you like if you like if you didn't like WrestleMania four, now that transpired, oh, it's the same damn thing here. 
Matt, always a pleasure going down memory lane with wrestling with you, sir. I know we've had some scheduling issues the last couple weeks. We are determined to get through this Attitude Era, but there are going to be lulls when Matt's doing a lot, I'm doing a lot in my life. I have a wedding to plan. I have so many things going on in my life right now, but we are determined to get through this, the two of us. This is a passion project we've had for a while, and uh, we're going to do our best, right, Matt? Oh, absolutely. We got some we got some good stuff coming up. You know, we got World War Three. We got Starcade coming up really soon. Getting into '96 is an exciting yes. time. So it started off a little rocky, just based on where we where we chose to begin. But you know, yeah. business is about to pick up very soon. Oh, nice. I have a feeling once we get to the year 2000, you and I are going to take probably about three months between each and every event. <laughs> Every event in WCW. Oh, God. <laughs> but until next week, when we review World War III 1995, see you guys at the matches. Thank you, Matt.